Hello, everyone. I have asked if you believe in ghosts. I've even asked if you believe in psychics. Today, I'm going to ask if you believe in witches. Our special guest today is Peter Muse, author of Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts, Legends, Victims, and Sinister Spellcasters. Today's conversation is an important one, and it might be more of a historical lesson than it will be talking about anything metaphysical, but it's a conversation that should be had nonetheless. It involves oppressed individuals who can't really relate to that during Pride Month. So we're going to jump right in. I'm your host, Ray Madrano, with our co-host, Homer Toblerone. Welcome to Woo. everyone and welcome back to woo woo today's guest is author peter muse and we're going to talk all about the witches and warlocks of massachusetts and a whole lot more hi peter how are you good how are you ray i'm excited to be here i'm good i'm happy to have you here uh if you guys haven't checked out peter's instagram the link will be in the box all all i gotta say it's pride month we're gonna have a little bit of pride and uh, you are part of the LGBTQ community, correct? This is true. Yeah, I'm, I am gay. So. That's wonderful. How how long have you been gay? Since I was born. Lady Gaga <laughs> was, right. I was indeed born this way. So Yes, absolutely. So I got to ask, your, your book has, by title, a supernatural element. Right. But it's also very historical. And we can get more into that too. But like, where do you fall on the spectrum of woo? You know, are you into the woo-woo? Are you more into the history and the science? Um, that's a good question. I feel like in terms of strange things like ghosts or Bigfoot or whatever, I would say I'm a conditional believer. Like during the daytime when the lights are on, I am a very skeptical person, right? I We'll look at scientific explanations and that if you get me out in the woods at night in the dark that's when i'm like oh maybe bigfoot is real maybe there really is a ghost in the cemetery right from yeah. out there in the dark or things like that so but most of the time i try to take like a historical approach and in this book that's one thing i wanted to do was to really lay out the history of these stories put them in context the cultural context of the time and things like the, things like that which may sound some people boring but that's not it's actually, well, I think, interesting to know where the stories came from, what the motivations are for the people that tell them, what were the motivations of people who accuse each other of being witches, like all of that stuff. And how did witch stories evolve over time? Like a witch story from the 17th century is very different from sort of the witch stories people tell each other now. But they're still telling each other witch stories in Massachusetts. And it was so petty. I mean, like, you know, a lot of the, the petty bettys that existed back in the day is just, it's really appalling. And, um, and I just love the stories, the, the people, the names, the titles that you give each story to these people that existed in real life is really, really cool. And I love and appreciate that you were able to do that. Now your book specialize, or I should say it focuses on Massachusetts. Yeah. Is that where you were born and raised? Yeah, I was born in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is on the Merrimack Valley. So it's about 45 minutes north of Boston on the New Hampshire border. It's like an old mill town, but it was founded in, let's say, six, I think founded in 1640. So relatively old, like one of the earlier 
Puritan settlements. The Puritans came over from England and sort of settled towns along the coast and up the rivers. So Haverhill was up a river. That's sort of how it was settled. Um, and I, you know, I was born in like 1967. I, I say like 1967. I was born in 1967. <laughs> um, you look and, good. Thank you. <laughs> and I, and uh, growing up in the 70s, there was a lot of supernatural and paranormal stuff out in the culture, right? It's like yeah. kind of coming out of the 60s, you had like Bigfoot, UFOs, the Bermuda Triangle, which you don't hear about much these days, was oh really God. big in the 70s. I was terrified of Bermuda Triangle. Every other unexplained, uh, was it Unsolved Mysteries, was like oh, a Bermuda Triangle episode. In search of, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we watched a lot of those shows. My older brother was really into that stuff also. And so he had books about Bigfoot and Crystal Skulls and you know, Chariots of the Gods, all that kind of 1970s stuff which yeah. loved and some of it was terrifying to me also um yeah. but growing up with that that has always remained you know part of my background part of my personality i went to college i studied anthropology um and sort of you know studied like folklore from around the world and things like that well i guess that kind of leads me into my next question is what was it like growing up in the epicenter of all of the, the witch and warlock, tr you know, trials and the devil and Satan running amok on the countryside? Because I would imagine that's like growing up in Texas as I did. And, and, you know, I, I grew up in Dallas. I didn't see a lot of cowboys, but everybody associated Texas with literal cowboys. And I'm like, no, I live in the city. You know, do you think that your interest in this was strictly regional or would you have been interested in it had you not grown up in Massachusetts? I don't, I still would be interested in it, but I think growing up in Massachusetts, um, you know, as I was saying, like I learned about like folklore from around the world, but only when I was out of school did I realize I did not really know as much about the folklore from my own part of the country, from New England. Yeah. Massachusetts in particular. So I had, like, we learned about the Salem Witch Trials a little bit. You know kind of the rough outline of things. But the focus when I was a kid was more on, like, the Revolutionary War. Like, we learned a lot about that sort of thing when I was younger. So it was sort of um, a way for me to explore sort of the history and legends of the place I lived my whole life. And I started yeah. to write a blog in, in 2008, and I started to write a blog. And I still write it, not as much as I used to. I update it maybe once a month now. And I just started to write the blog, and then I wrote a book, and then I wrote another book. So, so. Yeah, and I was checking out your blog. Your blog seems to be based on the places that you travel, right? So you visit a lot of these places that you're telling stories of. Right. And, right. and that's like a little legend, you know, legend tripping, as they call it. So let's go, yeah. let's go to the haunted cemetery. Let's go to the abandoned insane asylum. Let's go to Salem. Let's go to these places and see what we can see. You know, and as I said, like, I tend to go to these places um, – during the daytime, I'm yeah, not a ghost hunt. I'm not going to go there at night. You're not going to go to the abandoned insane asylum and find me there in the darkness. I'll go there during the daytime. Well, and that's that's also what I was going to ask: is has anything crazy or unexplained happened to you when you visited any of these sites? Um, I guess the weirdest one was um, we went to a place in Rhode Island called the Ramtail Mill Complex. And this was a mill that was built in the 1700s by a small um, river in rural Rhode Island. I think it's Gloucester, Rhode Island. Foster, Rhode Island or Gloucester? I can't remember, one of the towns in Rhode Island. And um, it was a small, thriving 
village built up around this mill, which would you know do textiles and things like that, run by the river. And it became abandoned at some point. And according to the legend, um, it was abandoned because of a supernatural event that happened. The manager of the mill um, was a very hardworking, industrious guy. And you know, every night after everyone went to bed in the village, you could see him walking around the factory, inspecting it, making sure the mill was all set. People would see his lantern, right? Interesting. And eventually, he, you know, he fell in love with the owner's daughter, according to legend, and <laughs> said to the owner, "You know, I'm a hardworking guy." I've worked here for many years. I'm in love with your daughter. Can I marry her? And the owner of the mill was like, yeah, no, sorry. Like, you're on my employees. You're not going to marry my daughter. So you can marry somebody better than you. Now get back to work. Um, <laughs> right? And so the manager of the mill was really distraught by this and ran off into the darkness. And the owner's like, yeah, oh, what else? Morning. You know, he'll come back in the morning. Next morning, everyone in the village is awoken by the sound of a bell ringing because they, the, manager would summon people to work by ringing this bell. And so they all go into the factory, the mill, basically, to go to work. And the bell is ringing, but it's ringing because the manager has hanged himself from the bell rope. Mm. His body is swinging back and forth. And everyone's like, ooh, this is not good, right? This is <laughs> the tea is hot. The tea is hot. <laughs> it's piping. Um, <laughs> so the owner just cuts the body down. He's like, you know, just get back to work, everybody. I'm going to hire a new manager. Yeah. <laughs> so that night, People see the lantern traveling around the mill, which the manager used to do every night. But of course, there is no yeah. manager because he's dead. Right? Yeah. And then the next morning, the bell is ringing, but there's nobody to ring the bell. The rope is just moving by itself. And so the owner like cuts down the entire rope, right? Just get back to work, ignore this. But then the next morning, the bell is ringing again. There's not even a rope. It is ringing. It's on its own. Wow. This is when people realize like, okay, there is something spooky happening here. Yeah. And according to legend, people start to leave. Like the workers, the people who live in the village are like, yeah, we're not going to. There's other places we can do. We can go back to the farm. We can go to Providence, whatever. We're not going to stick around this place anymore. Would these people be considered Puritans? Or is that They'd the, be Puritans, yeah. The Puritans, yeah. So that yeah. stuff was very like, no, 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 thank you. Right. Yeah, nothing supernatural, <laughs> please. Yeah. And so they all, they leave, the mill becomes abandoned. And you can still go to the mill. It's like foundations That's are there, cool. cellar holes. There were just these roads in the middle of the woods and things like that. And so my husband and I went there to just look around. And I will say it was spooky. Like it was very empty, very quiet, like no birds, nothing type of experience in the woods. And I was taking some pictures using my iPhone of just some stone walls and things like that. And they were coming out all white. Hmm. Like... I would take them and then it would just be pure white. Take another one, pure white. Take another one, pure white. And I thought, oh, this has never happened to me before. Yeah. And it has never happened to me since. And so I was a little freaked out by that. Like it was a spooky place and I had that spooky experience. And is it, was it something supernatural? Was it just a technical malfunction that day? Was a new iOS uploading into my phone? <laughs> I don't know, right? But at that moment, I when I was there, I'm like, oh, this is spooky experience if if you still have that photo would you send me one of them so i can just post it if you sure, i think i have it on my blog it's just white. oh yeah i can go to your blog yeah i mean <laughs> that's cool you know just to have a visual element to this yeah. i know that we're a podcast but i also put this um on spotify spotify has uh, a video 
uh, option now for their podcast. So, yeah, as long as you're not driving, you can see exactly what Peter's <laughs> telling us about. That's really cool. So you've never heard like strange voices or felt like your hair getting pulled or anything well, like that. <laughs> Sorry, no, no pun there. I don't have much hair to pull, as you can see. <laughs> um, I guess the other one, and this is a good story because I think it illustrates a few things. I there was a woman in Boston who was executed for witchcraft in I think it was 1666. Right, her name is Anne Hibbins. Um, Gibbons, I know and, Anne. Anne Hibbins, right? Hibbins, and yes, because of your book. Because <laughs> of my book. Yeah. And she was a wealthy woman in Boston, um, very argumentative, very bossy, right? Would not take no for an answer. And so this Love is sort of, people didn't like that in Puritan Boston, right? Yeah. Women were supposed to be moderate, right? The key word is moderate. And, so, and they're supposed to be subordinate to their husbands, which was not the case with her. Um, so when her husband died, he was a wealthy politician. He sort of protected her from, you know, scorn and from being, you know, taken down, basically. When he died, she suddenly became vulnerable to um, all the negative opinions of people around her. And people yeah. accused her of being a witch yeah. because she was so outspoken and so angry and so argumentative. Um, so she was executed in 1666. And she and her husband owned a large house in Boston. They also owned 300 acres of land in Brookline, which is a town right next to Boston. That's where I live right now is in Brookline. And so I knew she lived, she had land somewhere in Brookline. I was trying to find out where that land was. And so finally, like in the Brookline Historical Society or someplace like that, I find a map. And I look at the map and there's a big plot of land that says Hibbins, like it's the first map of landowners in Boston, in, in Brookline. Wow. And looking at the map, I'm like, oh crap, where I live right now, is right in the middle of her land. Wow. And my hair was kind of like, I had a little more hair at the time. It sort of stood up. That's so um, cool. And I was like, oh, this is really freaky, you know? And so I processed a little bit and I said, okay, I have to go to the supermarket and buy groceries. So I go to the supermarket and sort of a cloudy March day, like windy and a little wild. And I walk into the supermarket and as soon as I pass a glass window, a big red-tailed hawk flies into the window right next to me. Oof. Like, it's a little weird, right? Yeah. I finish shopping, go outside, I look down where the red-tailed hawk had been. There was a dead sparrow on the ground. And then the sound system, the PA system, starts to play like Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. Nice. Witchcraft. And I was like, my hair stood up even more like, like having this whole I'm getting chills. <laughs> and then I realized, like, the next week that I had read the map wrong. And my house was not where Anne Hibbins. Oh. So it's sort of like you can access these feelings. Oh, I'm sure. Access this kind of witchy energy that's out there, um, even if it's not necessarily accurate. You know, I actually did find the land where she is. It's now a park. It's a very okay. rough. So it's uh, open. So that means if I if I come to visit you, we can go to the park and have a seance, right? Go to Lost Pond. Yeah, there's big signs. Watch out for ticks everywhere. Like, <laughs> oh God, never mind then. I'm, I'm good without the ticks. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really cool. So I would, I mean, how, if you had to guess a percentage or maybe, you know, you have a better idea, but like how many of these women or or men that were executed or being accused of, satanic practice or witchcraft were actually practicing? I would say none. 
Really? I, I thought I read. I thought I read one of. Was it the first witch that was executed? She she was a healer. Right, and it's like everyone a, like a ex- alchemy. Everyone or... executed was a Christian, right? Okay. These folks were all Christians. They were all Puritans. Um, maybe a few, maybe a few Quakers. But she was like all... an herbalist, right? Or... Right. So they were herbalists, and that was a profession that women would go into, right? They were yeah. sort of physicians who generally were male doctors which I will say at the time, you didn't have to go to medical school to be a physician. Like you just had to apprentice with another physician. So watch, yeah. you know, not something you really want to experience. And as opposed to the physicians, there were healers who often were women who used herbal cures. Um, and the risk of being a healer was that if you were too successful, and this is what you see in some of these stories, women are too successful at being healers and people question how they are so successful. Like, why is this woman's herbal concoction so effective, right? Yeah, yeah. And people would say, well, perhaps it's because she's a witch, right? She is using some sort of evil magic to heal me, which is counterintuitive that you do evil magic to heal people. But right. they also <laughs> would believe that you see in a few stories that these women who are healers might say things like, oh, Ray, if you don't buy my medicine, your illness is only going to get worse. Yeah. And how do you interpret that? Is it that she's successfully diagnosing you and saying you really need to take this medicine to cure your illness? Or is she a witch who is threatening you that if you don't buy her medicine, she's going to use her magic to make your illness worse until you relent yeah. and buy her medicine? Yeah. Right? So it's sort of this... And because there were women at the time, which was very low in the social hierarchy, like they were very vulnerable to being accused of witchcraft. So there were probably four or five cases of women being accused of witchcraft who were just healers. Really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that being said, too, it's it's almost like common sense now. If you don't take your medicine, you're going to get sick. You're going to get worse. That's not me putting a curse on you. That's just stating the obvious. And it's really unfortunate that these, you know, women at the time were so oppressed. Uh, but even like, I mean, like you said, just having control over somebody or somebody doesn't do what you say. It really, it pains me to think of how many women that were maybe even assaulted or abused in some way. And then they get further abuse by being accused of such a, a, oh, yeah. like a horrendous thing that you end up dying in a horrible, or you get tortured. It's just brutal. It was a grim, like I'm fascinated by the Puritan era. I feel like they did a lot of good things. Like our culture is based on a lot of like education and they yeah. believe more there. They were not <laughs> great towards women. Certainly they were better than a lot of other people at the time, right? Yeah. Women could be full church members. Women were allowed to speak in church, like all these things that maybe other denominations did not allow. Yeah. Um, big on reading and writing. The children had to learn how to read and write and all these things. On the other hand, they were very much um, a dualistic worldview where either things were from God or they were from the devil. Yeah. And so if they, if it, you were practicing something that they did not think was from God, therefore it would have to be from the devil. And at the time, there was a lot, people did practice a lot of magic. So when you talk about esoteric practices, people did practice a lot of magic. So if you were, say, a, a sea captain or a merchant, right? When should I send my ship to the Caribbean to buy the spices and the molasses or whatever? You might go to an astrologer who would yeah. cast a chart for you and say, oh, the best day for you to go is June 6th, right? 
Yeah. Or if you're a young woman who wants to know when you would get married, you might go to a fortune teller who might read tea leaves or read your palm or something like that. Um, and so this was sort of a, these were common practices at the time. And people would even do these things at home sometimes. There were certain things women would do um, to say like, who, what type of person will I marry? And they would do this um, practice called the Venus glass, right? You take a glass of water and then you crack an egg white into it, into the glass of water. And you sort of interpret what shape the egg white forms. So like if it forms a plow, like are you going to marry a farmer? If it forms a ship, you're going to marry a sailor. If it forms a gun, you're going to marry a soldier, right? So you could sort of do it that way. But, you know, the Puritan ministers really frowned on these practices. They said, no, this, this is from the devil. This is witchcraft. So do it. But it was also very common at the same time. And some people who were executed during the Salem witch trials, in particular a man, man named Samuel Wardwell, was a very successful fortune teller. Um, and again, he was too successful. He was very accurate in his predictions. I think he was a palm reader and he could read palms really accurately. And um, his predictions came true. People were like, hmm, how, how can he be so accurate in his predictions? Yeah. He must be a witch in league with the devil. So he was actually. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's wild and cool. You know, one of the things that I think about often is that you painted a really good picture of it in your book about how they refer to anything satanic as like black or dark and how in some ways that still carries to today. When you look at somebody who wears all black or you look at a goth person and, you know, there's a lot of judgmental um, people out there that automatically assume or associate black with the devil or evil or Satan. And I think, I think, I mean, that's perfect proof. It's just, it's been there this whole time. Yes. Why is it that they equate it with dark and black and evil? Well, Do the black know? is interesting because um, when they talk about the devil in a lot of these accounts from the 1600s, from the Salem Witch Trials and earlier, they talk about the devil often as the black man, right? Like yeah. The man in black or things like this. Which as I'm reading, I'm like, well, that's kind of racist. And it's, it, <laughs> Racist and also something else, too. Part of it is that black clothing at the time was very, very expensive. Uh, like the dyes to make your clothing pure black were really expensive and hard to get. So most people were, wore red, green, brown, blue. Like these see, are the this colors. This is the stuff I love. Yeah. Tell me the average person wore. They would call them sad colors, right? That's because you're sad because you're poor. I guess you're wearing these sort of earth tones. Wealthy people like ministers... Um, politicians, judges, judges could wear black because they had yeah. the money. To wear Interesting. Black. And so the devil shows up wearing black because he is wealthy, and he's promising you wealth. Yeah. You sign your name in his book. He's going to get you some black clothing too. So that like, book has a lot of names, doesn't it? Book has <laughs> a lot of names in it. A lot of. Also, interestingly, um, like it's unclear what they mean often when they say the black man, like, is it just he has black clothing? Is he has black hair? Does he have black skin, right? Those, yeah. I think that connotation is sometimes there. And there are some stories, some accounts where people said the devil showed up to them looking like a Native American, right? He was so, he looks like a Native American. And part of this is because the Puritans, you know, they thought all, they thought they were on God's side. Yeah. And when it was not Puritan was on the devil's side. So that was Catholics. Quakers, whatever, but also the local Native Americans 
were, you know, in league with the devil because they were what, polytheistic mostly, right? They didn't, they worship multiple gods. Yeah. The Puritans, they were therefore in league with the devil. Also, at the time of like the Salem witch trials in particular, Massachusetts colony was under attack by a lot of Native American tribes who were in league with the French Canadians. Yeah. who were trying to like overthrow the English. So like, if you look at the Salem witch trials, a lot of people had fled to Salem from coastal Maine or New Hampshire when their settlements were burned down by Native American attacks. Yeah. So people in Salem were really afraid of Native Americans. And so I think that's one reason why he showed the devil often is said to look like Native Americans. They were so afraid of him. Well, and is that a Native American on your shirt? No, this is a Hercules oh. wrestling uh, service. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah. You know, I, I can I can see that and, and I vibe with it. I also think maybe the reason why they were, you know, calling it the black man or whatever is because I'm sure that at that time you didn't have city lights that we have now. So when you're staring out at midnight, it's probably really scary. You know, all you have is what, like a torch or a lantern. And, yeah. you know, so I, I think, you know, the dark black is just scary when you're staring at a pitch black night. And, um, yeah. and so what is the cryptid in, is it the boss? Is it the Mothman? Who's the the famous cryptid in the Boston area? I have to um, the Dover Demon is popular from the seventies. Okay, a popular one. Um, there have been a lot of you know Bigfoots out in the the country. Yeah. Starting in the seventies again, people start to say they were seeing Bigfoot. Um, Pakwajis are also kind of what is that? It's like an appetizer. <laughs> a pakwaji is um, a word to describe like this, these sort of small magical humanoids that live in the woods. And they're sort of like three feet high and covered with long hair. Um, and it's sort of a mix of Native American beliefs and sort of, uh, you know, dominant English Anglo culture beliefs mixed together. You get these concept of the Pukwajis, um, which are kind of these, you know, small kind of like hairy trolls, which are often said to be malevolent at worst, mischievous at best, right? They um, wow. yeah. will show, they will follow people home if you see them in the woods and kind of lurk outside your house and tap on the windows, looking at you as you're trying to sleep, doing these sorts of things. So that it's people have been seeing those around here. I mean. You see reports of them going back probably to the 80s or so. But oh. if you look at sort of um, Native American legends from across New England, their Native American lore talks about creatures like this, often with different names. They don't call them Pukwajis. They call them like Makayawasuk or Nimekamwasuk or these different names, right? Yeah. But it's sort of similar, like small, hairy creatures that live in the woods that you should treat with respect, you know, and sort of try to avoid it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how every culture seems to have a similar thing, you know, trolls, nymphs, fairies yeah. in some places. And even, you know, I always talk about angels um, and maybe fairies being the same thing and or maybe like angels and aliens being the same thing. It's really fascinating. Fairies and aliens being the same thing. It's mm -hmm. um, interdimensional beings. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people always will see strange things, right? And I've always seen strange things. And I think the labels are constantly changing. Yeah. It's, you know, but the phenomena remains the 
the same. Like if you look at some of these witch stories, a common complaint was like, I was asleep in my bedroom and suddenly, you know, my cranky old neighbor showed up, materialized in my bedroom and tried to choke me. And therefore I know she was a witch, right? Kinky. I couldn't move my body. I was immobilized as she hovered over me and tried to choke me or tried to get me to sign the devil's book, right? Yeah. And then when I woke up, she, you know, and then she disappeared. And, that's it. and now you also hear stories of people say like, oh, I was in my bedroom and an alien materialized in my bedroom and I couldn't move. And then it brought me up to the UFO and did horrible things. To and me. then probed me. Right. And then I came back to my bedroom and it was gone. Or yeah. I woke up and I saw a shadow person in my bedroom lurking over me. Right. So the same over and over and over. And how do you explain it? Right. Yeah. Is an alien. Is it a demon? Like, is it just sleep paralysis? Is it yeah. Paralysis? You know, but the same thing happens over and over. You read often these witch stories where it sounds a lot like poltergeist phenomena. You know, someone's in their house and rocks are raining down their chimney. Pots are flying off the shelves. Doors are slamming open and shut, right? And you or I might say, oh, it's a ghost or a poltergeist. But in the 17th century, people are like, oh, it's a witch. A witch is doing this to me. It's one of my neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. So, and which is it? Well, and, and somebody who's experienced those phenomena, I can tell you that once you begin to get in tune with energy, everything has a frequency. It has a vibration. It's like when you walk into a room and somebody's angry at you, mm. you don't necessarily have to look at them to just know their body, their posture, like their energy is a little different. You know, there's something unsettling about it. And I've found that when in cases of poltergeist phenomena that I've experienced there, it's just a happening. There's not like a consciousness behind it. You can mm. feel it versus when I've encountered what I would call a ghost or spirit, you definitely, I would feel it next to me as if I feel you next to me. Mm. You know, it's, it's really strange how that works. Um, mm. And I, I think it's cool now that there seems to be a more open mind and everybody's experience level um, to just be open to more experiences and new things. And on the same side, I see the pendulum swinging the opposite way where people are getting a little more closed minded and, you know, they've, I don't want to say it's going back to like a witch trial type thing, but I've had several people that I've talked to that fear that sort of persecution coming back to the side of people that are in more open-minded uh, experimental fields, such as talking about metaphysics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so how is it with, so I would imagine in Massachusetts, it's a fairly open minded community towards the metaphysical, or would you say that it's conservative? What would you say? Uh, Massachusetts is a very highly educated, intellectually focused state in a lot of ways. Like a lot of big universities are here, right? A lot of large yeah. universities, a lot of people send their kids here from around the world to go to college yeah. to get a good education. Um, I think it's liberal in the sense that the liberality is that you are free to do what you want as long as you don't bother anybody. Everyone just mind your own business, I'll mind my business. And that is the mentality here, I think, more yeah. than like, we welcome you and your strangeness. We're like, just do your thing and leave me alone. It's kind of the Massachusetts mindset. And so I think for people who aren't from Massachusetts and they come here to visit, they're like, wow, everyone is so like 
surly, right? Why is yeah. why are people saying hello to me in the store? Why don't people say say hello to me on the street? Like, it's just not the mindset. It's sort of like a you do your thing, I'll do mine thing, right? So in that sense, you know, your neighbors could be doing all sorts of crazy metaphysical stuff. You just don't know, and it's none of your business. That's cool. I like um, that. Yeah, it's good, right? It's a good approach to have. I yeah. think Salem uh, is sort of the big the metaphysical center in Massachusetts. Tourist capital of Massachusetts. Yeah, have you ever been to Salem, Ray? I really want to go. I know that sounds cheesy. I, mm. I really want to go. And actually, my partner and I, we I, I would love to open a brick and mortar crystal shop healing facility. You know, that's the dream. We're putting it out to the universe. But my part, my partner joked and he was like, what if we moved to Salem and opened a, and I, before he could even finish the sentence, I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many metaphysical and crystal shops probably exist in Salem? Like in a 50 mile radius? Come on. It's, um, it's a really interesting place to visit. Like we go there every year, particularly around Halloween time. And it's just like a crazy carnival of Halloweenness, right? And it's, um, there's just a lot, there's like multiple levels of witchcraft happening there. There's sort of the historical stuff. So you can go see like the gravestones of people who were executed. You can go to Gallows Hill and see the memorial. You can see the home of um, Jonathan Corwin, who was one of the Salem Witch Trial judges, a beautiful, crazy old house from the 1600s. That's a museum. Yeah. So you can see those things. You can, you can learn about the actual history. That's yeah. one part of it. Then you also have kind of um, the modern like witchcraft practitioners, Wiccans, et cetera, right? Running shops, uh, teaching classes, right? All of that, which is a lot of fun. Crystal shops, all of that is there. And then also there's sort of this sort of, what I would call like the Halloween horror movie witch, right? Oh. So haunted houses and people dressed like the devil and Frankenstein and werewolves on the street. You take your picture with them. People yeah. in Halloween costumes, zombie parades. So it all kind of comes together there in one big, event and you yeah. and it's up to you to figure out what you're interested in that thing, so right? is it like year-round halloween or is it just it around october around halloween i mean oh, it's more at halloween but it's a constant and uh, what have the sanderson sisters done for salem i'm curious <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot of people dress like the sanderson sisters oh i bet does that yeah. have any relevancy of a true story like does it have any kind of connection to real actual people no, I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Um, okay. It was filmed, some of it was filmed in that area, in the North Shore of Massachusetts. So there's a graveyard um, in the first movie. And we went to that graveyard, which is a beautiful graveyard um, in Marblehead, Massachusetts. So we went to that graveyard and um, some of the houses or the exteriors are actually real places in Salem. So I don't, the Sandersons were not actual people, but it was. <laughs> It's and it's a, it's a lot of fun to go up there, I think, and just experience all the stuff that's going on up there. And it's interesting, like Salem has been a tourist attraction since like 1850. Okay. Um, in 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the book The House of Seven Gables, mm -hmm. which is about a house with seven gables. In Salem, Massachusetts, has like a spooky history, and the witchcraft trials are involved in all this. And it was a huge bestseller in 1850. People loved it; they couldn't get enough of it. And so they would come to Salem to see the house and see the places he described. Hmm. And merchants in Salem were like, Ooh, this is a good way for us to make some money. Yeah. And so they started to sell like Salem souvenirs, like spoons and plates and cups and things like that in the 1850s. Wow. So it's been a tourist attraction for going on almost whatever, 
heading towards 200 years or so. So it's not as if the sale, the touristy part is a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. And people have always also complained about it too. People were like, impressive. oh, it cheapens the history or it's, you know, not legitimate or, you know, we don't want to pay, we don't want to bring up all that stuff again, particularly in 1850. People were living there whose ancestors had been like either victims or judges or accusers or whatever. Like, oh, we just don't want to talk about it. Like, we move on, please. But um, they yeah. can't, you know. So do you see yourself writing another book in the elements of of the supernatural or where's your next project taking you? I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book about monsters, like a Monsters of Massachusetts I book. I knew it. I knew it. I That's like why a monster I... story. I like a monster story. So I'm sort of blocking it out in my brain. I was feeling that when I was asking you about the cryptids and... Um, and I think that is a good, good, juicy project for you to work on. I would love to read something like that from you. Yeah, there's a lot of monster stories here. And it's um, part of it is just an older part of the country. So people have been telling monster stories since yeah. oh, the 1600s, you know, sea serpents and mermaids and demons, devils and all of this stuff. Um, hairy humanoids, fairies, all of it is here. And it's all it's interesting. So yeah. kind of how I would organize it probably by creature type i guess so like yeah. let's do a chapter on demons and devils let's do a chapter on aliens let's do a chapter on large hairy humanoids all these things and kind of i see it and i love it i am curious what your favorite story out of your current book right now is um that's a tough one a favorite one i don't know you gotta have a fa i relate to alice the harlot oh um, yeah, alice lake Poor Alice Lake. It was not easy for her. You know, you know I, I, another thing that I thought was interesting, I was reading one, is it the, the Satanic Hog? Oh, yeah, in Topsfield. Yeah. Yes. And I had an interest, I had a similar experience as a child with a dog that was black and it looked like it had out of this world eyes. Mm. And uh, I remember feeling like it was tracking me, like it was walking near me and, and hiding but every time i would look and glance behind like a light pole or something i would see like hair or i, I was young i mean i was i was walking yeah i was walking home from school and uh i mean i was maybe in like third second or third grade i, I remember seeing this mangy dog but when i caught a look of its eyes it they were i don't know how to describe it they just weren't normal and mm. and uh, yeah it was tracking me for a minute and then i started running home once i turned the corner and saw my house i just ran but when i turned back and looked there was nothing there and it kind of disappeared and there was something weird when i was reading there was a similar instance with that story where that animal was banished or told to go yeah and it left and it sent chills up my arm because when i was reading it i was like Oof, i've seen something similar though it wasn't a pig this reminds me of a creepy story which is not in this book it's from um tell me a writer from my hometown, I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. this writer named John Greenleaf Whittier, who was a Quaker poet who was very popular in the 19th century, so the 1800s, he was really popular. But back when poetry was like a thing that people would, you know, actually read. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote a book called Supernaturalism of New England, I think it's called, where he collected all these crazy stories from people he knew and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't necessarily believe all the stories, but he appreciated them and wanted to put them in the book. And so he was talking about a friend of his who also lived in Haverhill, who was feeling very depressed and very down on himself. And he was standing by the banks of the river 
feeling really sad. And the guy said that as he stood there by the river, he's had an overwhelming feeling of evil. He felt this overwhelming feeling of evil. And so he turned around to see what was happening. And there standing next to him by the river was a dog with a human head, hmm. which just stared at him with kind of these sinister eyes Yeah, and then vanished. And that was it. And the wow. guy was like, oof, that sort of snapped me out of my depression, you know, seeing a, an evil dog with a human face. Um, and no explanation. There's like no explanation of what this is. And John Greenleaf Whittier is just sort of like, oh, and then this happened. There's a dog with a human face. And my friend saw it. Before we move on to the next. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of makes me think, I don't know if you've explored angel lore at all or looked into angelic uh, beings, but there are some references of, of early biblical characters experiencing or encountering angels where they had like lions or animals heads and they had mm -hmm. multiple eyes, like all over their body swirling in fire, like creepy, creepy visuals. <laughs> and I'm like, Huh. You and what is it the angels always say, be not afraid, right? When they appear, be not afraid. Yes. Because they're scary. Like they're large and powerful. Yeah. Beings, well, and just... you know, like how can the human brain perceive such a thing if it exists? You know, it's kind of like when they say that the Native Americans didn't really see the ship coming up to the cliff for, I don't know if you've heard that reference um, until it was already right in front of them. I don't know if you've heard that. It's very interesting, but I think, you know, the human, the human mind and brain. Right. How do you conceive things that you've never encountered before? Right. Yeah. Or how do you conceptualize it? What is your profession, by the way? I'm an event planner. You're an event planner? I'm an event planner. That's yeah. cool. Do you love it? Do you enjoy it? I do like it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It keeps me very busy. But um, Actually, I work at a university, so it's a mix. Okay. Like, just a planning commencement. So Last you have time. access to the university library, I would guess. I Is I that do, where you got all your research for your for your book? I also belong to a library in Boston called the Boston Athenaeum, which is a, a historic private library. They You can just buy a membership, so I go there a lot too. They have a great selection of um, town histories. So like every town in New England that has a history has a book. They have that history, basically. That's so so like a few months ago, I just was like, oh, let me look through these histories of towns in New Hampshire to see which which see how many witch stories I can find. So I just found like six or seven witch stories I had never seen before, just by pulling books off the shelf, skimming through them like, oh, a witch story, a witch story, a witch story. And then just yeah. Books. yeah. I'm so envious of that because I grew up in Dallas and, you know, the main thing we have is the Dallas Cowboys and the JFK assassination and not much else, you know, but in San Antonio, they have the Alamo and, the, you know, Texas is very interesting because the boundaries were always like in war, you know, the, the boundary between Texas and Mexico and, and Spain and the U S it was always changing and it was very violent. And even down in like the French area, uh, there's a lot of spiritual energy that I've encountered, especially native indigenous energy. That's unrested in some towns and parishes in Louisiana and that's, it's always been super fascinating to me. I've had the most interesting encounters and experiences in Louisiana. Mm. Have, have you been to Louisiana before? I've been to Louisiana, yeah, a couple of times. I like it. It's really beautiful. Um, yeah. 
It has a charm. That's what I imagined. So going into the quarter, you know, the French quarter in New Orleans, there's always the the voodoo and you see all the things there. I mean, does Salem kind of have that vibe? And can you find that vibe outside of Salem in Massachusetts? Salem does have that vibe, definitely. That's, that is the vibe of Salem, right? Yeah. That sort of um, kind of touristy, kind of esoteric, a mix of the two, right? And if you yeah. want authentic spiritual experiences you can get it and if you just want to have fun and be a tourist you can do that too right so it's got a mix of those things i'm a big i guess i'm a big salem booster i'm like just go to salem like i love that so then i'm a big foodie as well and i gotta ask you if i ever go to you know salem or any part of massachusetts what should i look like what two or three foods can you say are like the staples of massachusetts Um, that i have to eat staples of massachusetts probably like fried clams oh uh, lobster rolls, like those oh, yeah. things. Um, other popular things. Well, this is going to sound weird. Dunkin' Donuts is enormous here. Like it is the most popular chain. Like there's wow. some town where, like I grew up in a town of like 50,000 people. I think there were eight Dunkin' Donuts. Wow. You know, in my neighborhood here, there was there were two Dunkin' Donuts, one each a half mile away. So you could walk like four blocks either way and get to a Dunkin' Donuts. That's so cool. People, love dunkin donuts for some reason so you get a lot of donuts um out here we have we have randy's i think and then we have yum yum yums or yum yummy something i don't know really good i've had dunkin it's all right my brother is a huge dunkin coffee fanatic yes loves it i i I like the giant cup of dunkin just walking down the street sipping it all season (laughs) Well, Peter, thank you so much for being here. Everybody, check out uh, where can we find your book, by the way? You can get it anywhere online. So, bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, really anywhere you buy books online, you can get it. Well, I'm really excited. And, you know, if you need a test reader, I mean, I like like getting the inside scoop. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. You should definitely join me again. For more about today's guest, please check out the comment box. And if you like us so far, please consider subscribing. Until next time, Woo Family.